0: Day on against the grain? What is this thing called police? What do the police exist to do, really? And what does Mark Neoclios mean by a critical theory of police power? I'm CS. We'll represent a conversation with the British theorist about police power, the war power, vacancy legislation, and the exigencies of capital coming right up this is Against the Grain. On Pacifica Radio, my name is C.S. Song. Demands for reforms to police departments and to police as an institution have proliferated in recent years. There must be more accountability, transparency, and respect for civil liberties. Police agencies must be restructured. The militarization of the police must stop. Letters are written, rallies are held, signs are carried, statements are made at hearings and assemblies. But what if, as today's guest contends, what if all of those demands are off the mark? What if they all miss the point, miss the point of what the police power actually is and what it exists to do? A critical theory of police power is what Mark Neoclios has developed and advanced in books, in articles, and in an issue of the journal Social Justice that he and the Anti-Security Collective have edited. To that issue, he contributed an essay with the title Original Absolute Indefeasible, or What We Talk About When We Talk About Police Power. Mark Neoclios is professor of the Critique of Political Economy at Brunel University, London, and the author of many books, including A Critical Theory of Police Power, The Fabrication of the Social Order, and The Universal Adversary, Security, Capital, and, quote, The Enemies of All Mankind. When Mark and I connected recently, I asked why he began his essay by noting how popular the use of tear gas by police forces against citizens, protesters, and others has become.
1: I chose it because I thought it had a a certain kind of impact tear gas is uh, is quite dramatic most people haven't been on the receiving end of tear gas but they've seen images of police using tear gas and, and those images are quite stark and if you have been on the receiving end of tear gas you'll know how just truly horrible it is um and so it's a very uh, very stark example of very direct police brutality, violence, aggression, um, and also a very you know technological form of police aggression. You know, it's it's very different to the baton on the head, the the nightstick on the head, and so I I wanted to use that partly because of um, its starkness. Um, I also wanted to use it because I wanted to frame the argument by pointing to the extent of its use by police forces in all sorts of contexts. And then I, I guess the main issue was that I wanted to use it in order to enact a kind of rhetorical ploy, which was to say, look, there is a way that the use of tear gas by police forces has been understood and discussed and criticized by radicals, by activists, by scholars, which is to talk about the militarization of policing or paramilitary policing. And I think that way of approaching policing is, is problematic. It takes us in the wrong direction. It's, it's uh, in one sense, it's, a, it's almost a, a distraction. And so I wanted to, to use tear gas as a way of saying, well, one way of thinking about tear gas, the use of tear gas by police forces is, you know, this is police militarization. But maybe that's not the way we should be thinking about policing. Maybe that's not the way we should be approaching the whole question of uh, police power.
0: So what is wrong or misguided about the argument that the police is getting militarized? It is getting more militarized, suggesting, as you read in your article, that police in the past were not in fact military in style and in form.
1: Right, well, there's a number of, of difficulties that that approach to policing uh, creates. I mean, the first is, I think, just straightforwardly, it it misrepresents the whole history of policing. It kind of presupposes that somehow policing and uh, warfare and, and militarized activity were somehow fundamentally different and that the use of certain kinds of technologies, such as tear gas, is bringing them together, um, and I think that's just historically just false. If you look at uh, the hist- it, the institutional history of police forces, they were deeply embedded with with military forces, um, and indeed, in some countries, you know there are particular forms of institution which straddle both police and military. So I think partly the problem is is just to try and debunk the kind of the myth of the history of police forces, which goes. You know, they're not about war. They're not about the military. They're about something else. Um, so that's so that's the first thing. The the second thing is to then try and get people to recognise that police forces themselves, police institutions themselves, the police power itself, when it when it thinks about itself and when it talks about itself, it's it talks about itself in in terms of war, in terms of constantly fighting wars you know the war on crime being the most obvious but also the war on disorder the war on drugs the war on poverty and, and and so forth and i think we need to take that language seriously you know i think we need to to understand to recognize that when police personnel when uh police theorists talk about fighting wars they they, they mean it seriously right and They don't mean this. They don't mean this metaphorically. This is not a metaphor that they're using. They mean it very, very seriously.
0: Yeah, let me ask you about a couple examples in your piece. One is the police forces in Ferguson, Missouri. We know something. You tell us something about how they perceive the people who protested the uh, 2014 police killing of Michael Brown, and also you cite uh, something that Daryl Gates, the former LA police chief, said.
1: I think that the, the example of Daryl Gates is quite interesting because he he, he occupies this certain uh, position, this certain status within the, the history of American policing. And he gave uh, he was at a presentation the day after the beating of Rodney King. If you remember, uh, he was head of LAPD when. Rodney King was um, beaten by several police officers um, and we now know about that event because of a uh, a video that was taken of it and so it's it's there for everyone to see That the day after that event the, that video hadn't been released and so his 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 kind of PR problem wasn't wasn't there and and he was giving a a talk at a major conference on policing uh with the um the national uh, criminal justice commission and he basically said well you know the problem is that we need to understand that you know police forces are fighting an enemy and he's very categorical about using this 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 language of the enemy and he then even went one step further and said well and this this makes a lot of people feel quite uncomfortable right and it makes people feel uncomfortable because one of the things that we discover when we realize that police forces are fighting an enemy is that the enemy is within you know the enemy is within in his case the American social body Um, so he was very honest and open about that and I think we need to take these kind of arguments seriously these claims seriously because they're not meant metaphorically
0: yeah and you write that in connection with the ferguson protests internal mission briefings produced by the missouri national guard reveal that the national guard was expected to treat protesters as enemy forces so this analysis pushes back on uh, what you call and what is in fact certain features of liberal ideology ways of thinking mainstream ways of thinking about police and what they exist to do and what they exist to be? What are, the, what are some of the features of this liberal ideology?
1: The starting point, I think, has to be to challenge the notion that policing exists to deal with, with crime. And so that's the, the key feature of liberal thinking about policing and crime becomes a kind of uh, a focus which detracts our attention away from what police power in general is intended to do. Right, And so what liberal ideology has done is it's constructed a whole kind of uh, an agenda on uh, of policing organized around the notion of, of crime, um, organized around the idea that uh, police exists simply to enforce the law and police has to exist because there are law breakers and that's why policing is essential to our order Um, and I think one of the things we, we we have to do one of the things I'm trying to do in the article is to is to rebut that is to say actually this is a kind of alibi for police power in general right it's an alibi because it plays on people's insecurities it plays on people's assumptions about Uh, about crime in general, and about often about specific crimes in particular. Um, And it detracts our analysis from what we need to be doing in terms of understanding police power. Um, And that is a far more general analysis, which is to situate police forces within an argument about the liberal state in general. What is the liberal state doing in general? What are, what are police forces doing in the context of the liberal state? And what that is meant to point our attention to is, is the question of you know, why does the liberal state exist in the first place? Why does police power exist in the first place? And that draws our attention to the relationship between policing, the police power, as I like to call it in general terms, and capitalism of how is it that capitalism is created? How is it that capitalism is sustained on an ongoing basis?
0: His name is Mark Neocleus, N-E-O-C-L-E-O-U-S. He's professor of the Critique of Political Economy in the Department of Social and Political Sciences at Brunel University, London. And he is the author of many books, including A Critical Theory of Police Power, The Fabrication of the Social Order. We are talking about an article ...that he wrote that appears in a special issue of the journal Social Justice about police power. He edited that issue of the journal with the Anti-Security Collective. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Karl Marx wrote in the early 1840s that security, quote, "...is the highest social concept of civil society, the concept of police." In what ways is this significant?
1: Yeah, so, good question. Um, you know, when Marx says, you know, security is the highest concept of civil society, what he's referring to when he refers to civil society is uh, what in, in the German term, "bürgerliche Gesellschaft, can also be translated as bourgeois society. What we might now translate as capital, right? it's capitalism. Um, And I think Marx is is incredibly insightful. I think he's picking up on something that's going on in the liberal revolutions and the liberal constitutions that are created in the uh, second part of the 18th century, the French and the American ones, obviously, which are the ones he talks about there, where he picks up on this theme of security that runs through these documents um, which is the kind of hidden theme right we you know we we talk constantly about you know liberty we talk constantly about equality but actually Marx is pointing to the fact that these constitutional documents are, are really really pushing home the point that the issue is security that liberty equality mean nothing without security and he points to the idea that maybe it's security that is actually the supreme concept for civil society for capitalist society he's also aware i think that all of those liberal theorists of the enlightenment adam smith montesquieu and so forth all end up pointing not to liberty as the fundamental issue but to security which is why all of those texts will often say well you know liberty is fundamental but on the other hand sometimes liberty has to be given up in the name of security and then what marx does is something very cheeky um, and he never really makes good on this right i think he basically you know gets interested in other other arguments and and doesn't really develop this argument but he basically says look well security is the, the the supreme concept of of capitalist society of civil society and he just you know it's well yeah the concept of police and i think he recognizes that police and security are fundamentally conjoined right in a way that allows security to be the alibi for police powers right you have to you have to accept these police powers because you want security and it allows policing to be constantly uh, refined, improved, intensified, in the name of in the name of security. So I think it's a very polemical, very provocative claim that Marx makes, and that becomes the kind of starting point for my for my argument.
0: Marx analyzed capital. He theorized capital. And you referred earlier in this interview to, to capital and suggested that capital was a fundamental feature of society around which policing was, um, I guess, developed and operates. So what should we know for purposes of your analysis of police power about what Marx understood to be capital and how police were created or maintained in order to protect it?
1: So one of the things that Marx is trying to do when he talks about capital is to understand how capital is historically constituted. Right? How is capital made? Right? How did the bourgeois class, the rising bourgeois class, actually create capitalism? And within that question is a, is a different way of formulating it, which is how... Did the the rising bourgeois class create a working class out of a a feudal peasantry? Now, that's a big historical question, and there's lots of ways in which it can be addressed. What I want to do is to say, maybe we should be thinking about that historical creation of capitalism as a police project, a project of policing in fact maybe we should go further and say that that historical creation is the police project par excellence right in other words that we should try and situate the rise of policing in the context of the rise of capitalism and that these things go hand in hand because what the rising bourgeois class needed to do was to create a working class and the only way you could do this was through state power and the institutions of state power which it understood as police institutions so one of the things we can do for example is to think about um, the vagrancy acts which you know pushed the the masterless men that were thrown off from the from, the, from feudal serfdom, um, it pushed them into forms of wage labour, right? We can think about, for example, the Enclosures Movement, which pushes people off of common land into pursuing forms of wage labour. We can think about the Enclosures Movement as a, kind of, as a police operation, right? Because if you can't find forms of subsistence outside of wage labour, then you're going to have to end up engaging in wage labour. And if you can uh, enforce the enclosures movement through legislation, enforced by police power, then in effect what you've got is a situation in which policing, in the most general sense of the term, is integral to the making of the working class. Right? And if policing is integral to the making of the working class, then in a sense what we're saying is Historically, the rise of capitalism could not have taken place without the police power. Right? The, the, the ruling class, in effect, used the state to police the working class into existence, to create the working class.
0: Yeah, and this issue of, of vagrancy laws and legislation, I think you write that vagrancy laws are the ultimate form of police legislation. I think this relates to a claim you made earlier this hour, which is that police power is not about, or not primarily about, crime prevention or law enforcement. Does a person need to have committed some crime before being arrested under vagrancy law?
1: No, absolutely not. That's, that's the beauty of vagrancy law. So one of the interesting things, of course, is that vagrancy law, as, I've just, as I said earlier, was integral to the to the creation of capitalism but what's also interesting is that um, vagrancy law remains central to the way in which uh, everyday policing takes place Um, and one of its beauties is that vagrancy law allows police on the street to to intervene in situations to stop people to search people to question people Um, ...without any kind of crime being committed, on the basis that the police officer in question suspects something. But they may simply suspect the person of having broken the vagrancy law. And if you look at vagrancy laws, they remain remarkably, uh, how should we put this, generous... ...towards uh, police discretion in terms of intervening in particular situations in the street. Right. So you can be stopped uh, in the UK for, under the Vagrancy Act of um, 1824, which is a part of which is still in place for British police forces. Um, you can be stopped for you know, really basic activities such as being uh, suspected of, of, of begging, of uh, moving in a particular way, of moving in a particular manner, of being in a particular part of the city in which you're not uh, meant to be in. Um, it basically gives police on the street a kind of carte blanche uh, possibility of just intervening in uh, situations which enable them to stop and question people and of course potentially arrest them. The other thing that vagrancy law does is it, it provides this kind of really expansive kind of discretionary power for police officers and that is fundamental to the way policing takes place on the street right the what police officers want more than anything um, is the 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 possibility the the right even to to just simply stop people and question them for whatever reason that the, the police officer might give it at the time and what vagrancy legislation does is it is it offers precisely that Right, So it's it the kind of foundational form of police discretionary power. And it's, of course, police discretionary power on the street that creates so many of the problems that we basically witness day after day after day after day where, where, where police officers stop someone and before you know it, they're, they're carrying out acts of brutality or even, uh, or even killing.
0: I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Mark Neoclios joins me. He's a... London-based critical theorist who focuses on questions of state power and capital, especially as they pertain to police, security, and war. His books include War Power, Police Power, The Universal Adversary, Security, Capital, and, quote, The Enemies of All Mankind, and A Critical Theory of Police Power, The Fabrication of the Social Order. Well, uh, let's say we accept your argument, and, of course, people can read in your Uh, books much more detail than you can provide this hour. But let's say we accept your argument that police power, the functioning of police, was integral to the making of the working class, to the disciplining of workers, to keeping idle and otherwise idle and disorderly people in line so they they could serve the needs of capital. Well, what about the argument that—and you write that it's a claim commonly made in police studies—that something happened, oh, in the 19th century, such that the police became more professionalized, that they became increasingly focused on things like law enforcement and crime prevention, that functions that didn't relate to that were parceled out to other state entities, state agencies. What do you make of that claim?
1: That's a good question. Um, One of the things that I've been trying to do, which I do in the article and I pursue at greater length elsewhere, is to, is to argue that rather than talk about the police, we should be talking about police power, or even if you prefer, police powers. Um, and I do that partly because I think we need a concept of police that isn't simply reducible to the police institution. And the reason for that is because what I want to argue is that we need to understand how it is that the state polices, in the broadest possible sense of the term, polices civil society. And by polices here, I mean not only kind of manages or controls, but actually constitutes and reconstitutes social order as a whole and political subjects so i'm i'm using the term police power in the broadest possible sense right and the idea is to try and integrate a, an account of the police institution or if you like police forces within that broader concept of police power now that's problematized by the kind of uh, developments that you you're pointing to in the in the 19th century where various parts of what was historically the police power are kind of hived off into different parts of the state right so classically you know prior to the 19th century police forces were charged with you know street lighting bridge building firefighting and so forth right and these get separated out okay now we could follow the liberal line and say these are not about policing anymore right Or on the other hand, we could try and integrate these these processes, these uh, systems into a general theory of police power, which would enable us, I think, to connect them, to reconnect them back to the way police forces operate. So what I argue is that actually, you know, despite that kind of uh, 19th century development in the professionalization of other forms of uh, other parts of the state um the police connection with these things is never lost all of these different systems operate through um or with or in conjunction with police forces right they often find that they're the key moments that they have have to reintegrate police officers back into their processes in order to to achieve the goals that they they want to achieve um and the Police forces themselves presuppose that they have a fundamental uh, right and capability to involve themselves in these, in these other activities. Right? Which is why, of course, we find police forces here, there and, and everywhere. The ubiquitous nature of policing has not been lost with the supposed professionalization of police forces in the 19th century.
0: Mark Neoclios joins us on Against the Grain. I'm C.S. Song. He is professor of the critique of political economy at Brunel University, London. And Mark, your article about police power in this special issue of the journal Social Justice, your article is called Original Absolute Indefeasible, in quotes, or what we talk about when we talk about police power Uh, Original, absolute, indefeasible, where does that language come from and uh, what does that tell you and what should it tell us about the nature of police power? Obviously, you've already referred to the kind of massive discretion uh, that police officers have when accosting, let's say, someone they consider to fall within the ambit of vagrancy laws. But original, absolute, indefeasible suggests something um, maybe quite a bit more expansive.
1: Yes, that's exactly what that um, that terminology is is meant to do, and that terminology, and I give several examples of similar phrases in the article. Is the, the it's it's taken from well a, a variety of sources. Uh, the you know one is you know just political philosophers through the eighteenth uh, and nineteenth century who tried to get us to think about police and how we should understand police. And the other source is um, people who have, lawyers who have thought long and hard about uh, police powers. Um, and I guess there's a third source which is a series of case laws in which you know, senior lawyers have commented on the nature of, of policing. Um, and the reason I want readers to, to go to these sources is because I think they're they're actually incredibly useful in focusing our attention on what it is that is going on when policing is taking place. This this phrase you're, you're you've picked up on one particular quote which is you know the the idea that it's original, absolute and indefeasible. I, I you know, if you just take that for example you know it's original in the sense that you know no state can exist without without some fundamental police powers in its own power right no state can exist without having the powers to police the thing that it's said to exist to police right namely civil society um and it's absolute, right? And this is really important, right? Because all of these political philosophers, all of these police lawyers, right? All of these case studies in, 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 in the Supreme Court point us in the same direction, which is, you know something, we, whoever we are, right? We political philosophers, police ideologists, lawyers, we find it very difficult to say what the limits on police power can or should be right? That in some sense, there is something kind of integral to police power that makes it absolute. And however much we might want to try and delimit it, it's impossible to do. You know, that that policing is, uh, in some sense, an act of sovereignty, and that act of sovereignty cannot be delimited. I think we need to kind of take on board what they're saying, By that, I don't mean we should give up struggling against these powers, quite the opposite. I think recognizing what they're telling us is important for how we go about thinking about policing um, and how we might then go about challenging some of these powers, because that's the problem, right? That's the problem, because any challenge to police powers finds itself up against precisely this very, very practical problem, which is... um, which is that politicians and courts will often go, well, no, right? You can't challenge them in that way, right? No, what you think is an act of of excessive or completely discriminatory violence is not so because it's conducted in the name of police.
0: Yeah, and what you are saying goes against the grain, if I may, of... As you said earlier, liberal ideology, so many assertions of liberal ideology, such as that police carry out law as made by the legislature. Uh, Clearly, you would disagree with that. In what ways do the police go go far beyond uh, what the legislature says? And I think you also make an argument about what the legislature does to legitimize police practice at times
1: yeah so i think the problem with kind of mainstream approaches to policing and you know that stem from a kind of inbuilt set of liberal assumptions about how the state operates is that um, there's an assumption that police simply exist to carry out the law as defined or announced by uh the executive and passed by the state in general right the judiciary and so forth right in other words that all the police does is carry out the law so whatever the law is the police simply enforce the law right and we got this mainstream notion this uh, everyday notion that that's what the police do but what we need to recognize is that law is changed time and again by police action right police act in certain ways and this presses against existing laws and then eventually politicians come around right judges come around they come around they adjust their thinking to if you like the police reality right so the police behave in certain ways and they will constantly behave in certain ways until laws are changed and sometimes that takes years and years and years right it's a kind of if you like a war of attrition between police institutions and other institutions of the state and sometimes it's it's very very direct i mean you know there's currently a debate in the uk about a new crime and policing act that's going through parliament that is is designed to give police you know even greater powers over over uh, various forms of um, operation in particular the policing of, of demonstrations and protests but also the policing of, of everyday life for example um you know whether people are might for example be you know, living in their cars um and it's quite clear now that this new legislation came about because the the senior police officer for the metropolitan police in london who is this in effect de facto the the most senior police officer in the land you know convinced the home secretary to to bring in this new legislation right the the documentation is fairly clear now that the police said well we need some new legislation here um and it seems to be going through right so there are various ways in which this can this can happen you know through a, a general war of attrition over over years and years of police constantly doing something until the law is changed or a straightforward you know word in the ear of the home secretary but even if that doesn't happen you know the the amount of times police engage in acts of what we would call illegality right but what police officers will say you know they have to do in order to 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 carry out their everyday duties in order to ensure that law is is law and order are enforced the the research on this the documentation on this is is very clear now right that police engage in acts of of illegality you know whether it's incredibly mundane acts of illegality or major acts of illegality um, right down of course to the point of killing people and they will justify these acts on the grounds that, you know, they're carrying out police, police duty, right? They're, they're engaged in police operations. And this gives them a certain kind of, um, of immunity.
0: Yeah, in fact, you cite a study showing that most police, I'm not, in sure, I'm not sure in what jurisdiction, most police officers believe that to fully impose and adhere to the rule of law would make police work impossible. Yeah, and that goes back to
1: the uh, conversation we we're having a little while ago, which is, you know, the police is, they, they don't, so this is tricky, right? In a sense, we need a kind of psychoanalytic reading of the whole police institution, which is, is impossible. But, you know, police don't really believe that, that what they're doing is, is enforcing the law. What they believe they're doing is maintaining order. But, of course, they can't simply say that because we have the whole ideology of the rule of law. So what they have to do is to play the game that what they're doing is enforcing the
0: law. Democratic control of police. This is a, a demand, a fairly common demand, right? We need to restructure uh, police institutions and departments so that there is input. There is some level of oversight from citizens, from regular folks, from non-police what is that a way to counter in your mind the absolute power the overweening discretion of police forces
1: so it's quite hard to answer that question without getting into into trouble in the sense that the political impetus behind it in in terms of where i think you're coming from is obviously something that in one sense i'm very sympathetic to um, the problem is that there have been so many times in which this has been tried and either nothing happens or nothing changes or what's worse is that the, the democratic control or the supposed democratic control often involves control by you know, thoroughly reactionary racist conservative elements Um, So I think there's a practical problem, right, which is what exactly does does this mean, this democratic control? I think there's a more kind of theoretical issue, if you like, or a broader issue to take on board here, which is what we were saying just a few minutes ago about the idea of policing being absolute, that there has to remain something absolute about policing for policing to... To continue in the way that it does right is, is if you like it's precisely that absolutism to use that term in a kind of modern sense not in the 18th century absolutist state sense that it's that absolutism of policing right that completely unchallengeable nature of policing that makes it entirely resistant to the kind of democratic control that i think a lot of activists want they want that there's something not just original absolute indefeasible about police power there's something kind of slippery about it right there's something uh gelatinous about it right that uh, you know is going to constantly keep slipping out of our hands right and that there's something about the police power that is de- it's designed in that way it's designed in a way that means that the people the citizens will never be able to fundamentally Of democratically control it because it's got its nature as a substance, puts it outside of democratic control, puts it outside of democratic management.
0: Mark Neoklios, critical theorist and author based at Brunel University London, is my guest on Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. So you're uh, giving us a, a very stark sobering picture of police and police power. Uh, Clearly the suggestion is that you do not approve of uh, this institution or whatever you want to call it having uh, this uh, amount of power over our lives and of course its agenda with respect to the working class is something you strongly object to. So the question arises what should we do with the police? What's the solution? We may be speaking in a realm of speculation and to some extent fantasy, given the power that police has, given the power of the state, given uh, the relationship between police and sovereignty. But in an ideal world, what would happen to the police? Well, okay, so that's a good question. I mean, look, on the one
1: hand, right, I'm, the, the arguments that I'm making are, designed to stress the relationship between policing and capitalism and they're designed to say look actually the the issue here is is capitalism the the issue we have is we live in a world of exploitation of expropriation of alienation and such a world needs policing because it it, it cannot exist Without the police power, right, and so, so long as you have, you know, a world in which you know resources and lives and labor and work is is, is expropriated from the people and the people are exploited, um, we're not going to get rid of the police power, right. Now I realize, of course, that is not going to be a satisfactory answer to a lot of people, right, because it's essentially a way of saying, well, if you want to do it, if you want to really solve the problems of policing you need to abolish capital which is my position right um but i realize you know we live in this world and we feel like we want to make a difference in this world and and my answer won't be satisfactory um but i think we still need to actually make that argument time and again right because we need to recognize this is this is the conditions of our existence right and that is what we are facing that said we are living in a in an incredibly exciting moment in which there are all sorts of of movements and and challenges that are taking place which are you know incredibly incredibly exciting and um and it will be it will be really interesting to see how they pan out um i'm going to make a Let me make an observation which tries to pick up on those, if you like, the two directions in which this answer is going. On the one hand, the direction of the abstract theory, which points to our our, our fundamental problem. And on the other hand, a kind of, you know, a a sense in which there is an excitement in this moment. Um, So in June, two things happened, um, one in the US and one in, um, in the UK which i i think are quite interesting the first thing that happened was that officer chauvin was found guilty of the uh the murder of george floyd uh in the us yeah um whatever it was the second degree murder or well, i forget the exact distinctions that you you have there but nonetheless he was he was found guilty um in the same month a british police officer was found guilty of the manslaughter but not the murder of a someone called Dalian Atkinson I'm mentioning his name because he happens to be an ex-professional footballer so it was a widely publicized uh, case Um, I'm assuming your listeners will know lots of detail about the George Floyd murder so I won't go into detail there but just so in case people don't know the the officer in the UK PC Monk uh, was called out to a an incident in the street where Atkinson appeared to have, have been engaged in some kind of episode in which he was having some kind of um breakdown I'm, I hesitate about using some of these words but you know it's some kind of psychotic episode anyway there was a there was an issue right and uh, PC Monk pulled out his his taser and fired it for 33 seconds uh, which is 6 times longer than The regulations allow Um, and but then after using the taser uh, then kicked Daly and Atkinson in the head twice and Atkinson died Um, so a few years later this case came to court and and in June uh, PC Monk was uh, found guilty of Atkinson's manslaughter now I think it's quite interesting right both of these cases came about in the same month and I think it's interesting because If one was being optimistic, and I say if, right, because I'm not an optimist, as you probably gather from most of the things I've said, but if one was being optimistic, one would say this, these two cases together could be construed as taking, as taking major steps into challenging a whole logic of, of police immunity. Right. And I know that the U.S. talks about qualified immunity, but d- deep down, of course, that qualified immunity is not really qualified in many significant ways. Right. But there's a whole logic of police immunity, which has allowed police on the street to get away with acts of of violence and killing. OK. And time and again, no one, no police officer is found guilty of either manslaughter or or murder. Um, and I think in the article that you've read, I think I give the um, details from the UK that, you know, in, in some 30 odd years from 1990, there were just short of 2000 people that died in the, in the hands of police, right, whether in police custody or on the street being handled by police. And not one officer up until June, not one officer has been found guilty of, of manslaughter or murder. And then suddenly pc monk is found guilty of manslaughter in the very same month that chauvin is found guilty of the murder of george floyd now this these two cases right and it's only two cases seem to me to be potentially at least a significant inroad into the whole logic of police immunity where police can carry out acts of violence and get away with it right be immune from prosecution for the acts of violence carried out in the name of of of, of their uniform or in the name of the state so i think there's something there right i think there's something interesting going on right that maybe some of the campaigns around police violence are having an impact maybe i don't know for sure right i'm slightly hesitant that slightly hesitant that in in the case of pc monk if it wasn't for the kicking in the head and it was just the use of the taser that killed him he would have got away with it right but Nonetheless, right, there's something possibly interesting going on, but, sorry, that was, if you like, the optimistic side of my answer, but that whole concept of immunity is far more powerful than we realize, right? And that whole concept of immunity stems from a state logic that goes back over a century, right, which allows the state to grant certain personnel immunity from prosecution for acts carried out in the name of the state so the classic case of immunity of course is diplomatic immunity or if you like the immunity of ambassadors when they go and situate themselves in another sovereign territory but that's that same logic of immunity that has been attached to for example soldiers out in the field but also of course police officers right as agents of the state Right. So, on the one hand, I'm kind of going, well, I'm thinking maybe something interesting is happening here. Maybe, finally, something has happened to chip away, to, to cut into that notion that police officers should always be immune from prosecution for their acts of violence. On the other hand, and this goes back to my more general kind of my insistence on a more general theory of police power, I think to really understand where that immunity comes from, we have to understand the police officer on the street as an agent of the state right that the sovereign state recognizes as its agent of violence on the street and that will and that has for centuries attached to the officer an immunity which it's going to take a real real struggle to to undermine to, for us to challenge
0: mark neoclios I'll spell that again, N-E-O-C-L-E-O-U-S, professor of the critique of political economy in the Department of Social and Political Sciences at Brunel University of London. You may want to check out his books, which include A Critical Theory of Police Power, The Fabrication of the Social Order, recently out from Verso, War Power, Police Power, and Critique of Security. We've been talking about His general body of work, some of which has been condensed into an article he wrote that appears in a special issue of the journal Social Justice that he co-edited with the Anti-Security Collective, the issue is entitled A Critical Theory of Police Power in the 21st Century, and Mark's article is entitled Original Absolute Indefeasible, or what we talk about when we talk about police power. Mark, thank you so much for your work, and thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you for your time and interest.
0: And that program first aired on August 23rd of this year. And this is CS suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning. And we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.